the conference was going to be going on for a while. Um, and so about 8.30 that night, um, I was across the street, and so I decided to run back over and get my coat so I could walk home and be warm. And I got there, and all the coats were gone. And so I asked one of the, uh, the security guard nearby where it was, and he said, oh, well, they pick them up at a certain time, and they take them, and they're locked up somewhere. Um, so I had the joy of walking home to the hotel in very cold weather, and then got back in the morning and freeze my coat from Coat Check Prison for <laughs> an additional fee. Um, but I got my coat, and I did not check my coat after that. But I did see there that there was a sign um, that said that they close at this time, so pick up your coat, or you will not have it. <laughs> so uh, if you're going to be traveling, you know, anywhere cold, then uh, it's a good, uh, good pro tip for you. Um, so as Mike said, we're going to be talking about the Incarnation over the next couple of weeks um, during this season of Advent. And uh, I think when we talk about the Incarnation, it's a lot like if you, if you have children or if you have younger brothers or sisters or if you've just been around children at Christmas whenever um, they get to a present and they're just really excited and they're just ripping the paper off really excited and then they get to it and they're like, I love it! It's exactly what I wanted. I've always wanted this. And then a couple seconds later, they're like, what is it? So, uh, I think sometimes that's the way we tend to think about the Incarnation. It's something that we've always wanted, we've been hoping for, and then when we start to think about it, we're not really quite sure um, what it means, and so over the next couple weeks, um, that's what we'll be talking about. Um, So as Mike said, today's the first season, or the first day of Advent, which is the season of of waiting and anticipation as we're approaching Christmas, um, getting ready for, to celebrate uh, the coming of our Lord and the birth of Christ. Um, it's a season, uh, it's, a, it's a time of anticipation and great expectation, um, characterized by hope and peace and joy and love. It's about the coming of Jesus as a baby born in a stable. And so it's much like, when we talk about it being this hopeful longing, it's much like the eager anticipation of an expectant mother awaiting for the birth of her child. You know, when a mother finds out she's pregnant and the mother and father together start to prepare themselves for this wonderful gift that is coming. And so when we celebrate the season of Advent, we participate uh, with the church throughout history in remembering all that God has done and then all that he promises to continue to do. So Advent serves to point us back to the past while also moving us forward to our future hope. And so today I want to focus on that aspect of waiting um, that theme of hope as we look forward to, Christ, uh, to Christmas and think about how God has faithfully acted throughout history. I want to try and help direct our hearts and our minds toward the incarnation, which is this cataclysmic event in which God becomes flesh and enters our world. And I want to stir up a sense of longing and hopeful anticipation as we approach Christmas and continue looking forward to Christ's return, which is what we would call the second advent. So I think it will be helpful for us to slow down. It can be really easy for us to just get really busy this time, and we're already in December and almost at the end of the year, and I can't believe it's about to be 2014. And if we're not careful, then Christmas can just pass us by. Um, So I want to help us slow down and just wonder and think about all that God has done. So our text this morning is going to be um, in Luke chapter 1. If you want to go ahead and open up there. We're going to read about the story of two women, Elizabeth and Mary. And these are two women who experienced the faithfulness of God in two similar and yet very different ways. 
Um, so I'm going to read uh, Luke 1. I'm just going to read Elizabeth's story first. It's starting in uh, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And, there, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as a priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at that hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. And so that tells us that Zechariah and Elizabeth have been wanting a child and hoping for a child. And your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children, and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Verse 18, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So Zachariah and Elizabeth have gotten to this point where it doesn't seem possible for them to have children anymore. In 19, and the angel said to, answered him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. Now after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept, her hid kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me. And the days when he looked upon me to take away my remote reproach among the people. This is the word of the Lord. Okay, so starting in uh, Luke's gospel, we see that he gives us a short introduction in verses 1 through 4, in which he explains his goal of trying to provide an orderly account of the life of Jesus. And then he begins his gospel with the promise of a child. And this is the announcement of the birth of John. So now the promise of a child is, prominent, is a prominent thing that runs throughout the Old Testament, and I think Luke's inclusion of Elizabeth's story here serves to point us back to this theme in the Old Testament, to highlight God's faithfulness to his promises through the years. Luke is situating his gospel within this larger context of his salvation history, and so Elizabeth's story and the promise of a child is one that we're going to see many times throughout the history of God's people. And this promise actually goes all the way back to the beginning and to the story of Adam and Eve and the garden. So what I want to do this morning uh, is go back to Genesis, and we're going to start there and kind of work our way back towards Luke and just stopping at a couple of places to see this um, theme of God promising a child and then providing one um, as we get back to Luke and Elizabeth and Mary's story. Um, <clears throat> so again and again, we're going to encounter 
um, situations of emptiness and their promise, hopeful expectation, and then the birth of a child. So if you want to go ahead and flip back to uh, Genesis 3, I'm going to give you sort of the Cliff, cliff Notes versions of each of these stories um, to kind of give you some context. And uh, bear with me because we are going to be reading a lot of scripture. If you want to go back to Genesis 3, um, so in Genesis 1 and 2, we're reminded of how God spoke into the darkness and he created the heavens and the earth. And then God created um, all things and saw that it was good. And then God created man and woman in his own image and set them in the garden to fill the earth and tend to creation as his image bearers. As Genesis 1.31 says, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. So we're in a good place right now. And now if you're familiar with the story, you'll know that paradise is, is rather short-lived <coughs> as the serpent leads Adam and Eve to break God's commandment and to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And because of this, through humanity's transgression, sin enters into the world and God's image bearers experience corruption. Humanity's relationship with God is broken. We are enslaved to the power of sin and we become hostile not only to God but also to each other. And so we see that when sin enters in, that relationships are, are messed up. And I think we can still look at the world today and see that. Um, <clears throat> so man and woman then are sent away from the garden. And then life is forever changed. I like how one author puts it that life outside the garden is life away from one's true home. And so th things quickly go from being very good when God created the world and called it good to being very bad. Um, so we just need to keep reading Genesis, Genesis through the rest of the story to see um, we're quickly encountered with murder and jealousy and violence. Um, Israel is enslaved and there is exile and return from exile and more exile. And so from very good to very bad. But, and this is a very important but, God speaks hope into a broken world with the promise of a child. So in Genesis 3.15, God is responding to the serpent. So after Adam and Eve have sinned and God goes looking for them in the garden. And this is what God says, says to the serpent. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now this text has traditionally been called the Proto-Evangelium, um, which means uh, the first gospel. So Proto-first and Evangelium, the gospel. And so the, historically, the church has understood this verse as a prophetic promise that's pointing to the coming of Christ. Um, this is God's good news in the midst of a very tragic situation, um, that God will provide a child to make right all that has gone wrong with his good creation. God is promising life where there is none. And so now the world waits for God to do what seems to be impossible. Um, so we just read Elizabeth's story, and her situation actually points us back to uh, a number of women in the Old Testament, because barrenness was a common theme throughout um, the Hebrew Bible. So time and again we meet a man and a woman who are childless, um, usually due to barrenness, and then often any hope of children has passed because um, the man and the woman are too old um, to conceive children anymore, so... I don't know a lot about biology, but I know that there's a certain point that it just doesn't happen anymore, right? Um, so this is usually where we meet a lot of couples um, in the Bible that are experiencing this, or it might just be um, the woman alone who is experiencing um, this barrenness. And so barrenness was actually one of the worst things that could happen to a woman in the Old Testament. 
um, in the ancient world um, because not only was there a social stigma attached to um, not having children, um, a woman's financial well-being was also tied up. The way that culture and society worked, a woman was dependent on her husband and then having children and carrying on the family name. So childbearing was a woman's unique way of participating in humanity's vocation to be fruitful and multiply. And then, so in light of this promise in Genesis 13, or 3.15, I'm sorry, um, one author comments that the bearing of children became this source of hope, the reminder of God's commitment to the human race that he would one day bring redemption through the seed of Eve. Um, so if God's promise was contingent upon a child, it was a, it was a problem for a woman not to be able to have a child. Um, and so we're going to look, we just read Elizabeth's story, and it's particularly uh, reminiscent of Sarah's story in uh, the book of Genesis. Um, as you, we read through, you may have noticed some of the language, some of the conversation was very similar. Um, Zechariah's reaction is a lot like Abraham's reaction. Um, so that's where I want to uh, start now is in Genesis 12. Um, and I'm going to give you kind of, we're going to move through Genesis 12 through 19. So I'm going to give you cliff notes again. Um, and talk about Sarah and Abraham. So if you want to go ahead and start, uh, we're going to be jumping around, but if you want to flip to Genesis 12, you can do that. So God's promise of a child uh, from Genesis 3.15, what we just read, is picked up again in the story of Abraham and Sarah. In Genesis 12, God calls Abraham, who's still Abram at this point, and he makes a covenant with him. So Genesis 12, I'm going to read 1 through 3. This is the first um, time we see God's promise to Abraham. Now the Lord said to Abraham, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And so we see now that God is beginning his work of redemption that he promised in Genesis 3 through Abraham and his wife Sarah. God's covenant involves the promise of a child. As God says, I will make of you a great nation. So if God's going to make a great nation out of Abraham, we presume that that's going to involve children and heirs. And then through Abraham and through his offspring, all the nations will be blessed and he will be blessed. Abraham will be blessed in order to be a blessing. But at this point, uh, Abraham and Sarah, they have no children when God calls them. Um, not sure quite how old they are at this point. Um, but they don't have children, and so they're eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of God's promise, the birth of a child. Um, I think from the context we can see that it's not that this promise is not that far-fetched yet. Um, but a few chapters later, if you want to flip to 15, which turns out to be some years later, so some time has passed, several years, we encounter Abram again, but he still has no child. And Abraham uh, begins to grow impatient. Um, wondering when God's going to make good on what he promised him. And so he decides that he's going to try and figure out how he can fulfill God's promise on his own. Um, so thus Abraham assumes that his heir will have to be his servant, Eleazar. But God says, nope, that's not going to be that guy. And it's in, in Genesis 15.4, uh, God reminds Abraham, this man shall not be your heir, your very own son shall be your heir. And so Sarah, too, becomes impatient, but she gets an idea that uh, since she has yet to give birth to a child, um, she's going to give Hagar, her servant, to Abraham as a surrogate. 
So Sarah, it seems, has also grown tired of waiting. But it should work because this will still be Abraham's son. Um, but if you know the story or if you can guess, Sarah and Abraham's interference goes badly. And so though Agar does conceive and bears a child by Abraham, who's now 86 years old, by the way, um, God tells Abraham that this child is not the child that was promised. Um, there is yet more waiting to be done. And now we are at 13 years later in Genesis 17. Um, 13 years later, still waiting, God meets with Abraham again and restates his promise. So Genesis 17, uh, verses 4 through 6. Behold, my covenant is with you, and ye shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but you shall be, uh, your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. So notice here, God's telling Abraham that I have made you a father of nations. It's, it's as good as done, um, even though he still hasn't seen it come to fruition. Verse 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations. And spoiler alert, kings shall come from you. And so this is at 86 years old. And God continues and says, As for Sarah, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. Uh, I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. And so Abraham's response is probably a natural one. We might respond the same way, that he fell on his face and laughed. And he said to, said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who is 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90, 90 years old, bear a child? Obviously our natural response is no, probably not. But God says, Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Okay, so we now have Abraham, who is nearing 100 years old. And then Sarah, likewise, is old. She's in her 90s. Um, and uh, scripture tells us that the way of women has ceased to be with her. And that means that biologically she can't have children anymore. So Sarah is barren, and she has been, and she is. And as far as humanly conceivable, she will continue to be so. And so now we're thinking that God's promise seems impossible. And yet it is within these circumstances, these impossible circumstances, that we can't even conceive of how this is going to happen, that God chooses to demonstrate his power. He brings life where there is none. And finally, a year later, Abraham and Sarah, their waiting is over, and Isaac is born. He's a child of promise. Now, I want to think for a moment about the amount of time that has passed from the moment that God first promised Abraham a son until the actual birth of Isaac. So we've seen that several decades have passed um, while Abraham and Sarah eagerly await the fulfillment of God's promise. So we have Abraham is some age, and then years, years, years later at 100 years old. Um, I don't know if you've ever waited for something, but... It's hard waiting, you know, a week for something to happen, and then let alone decades and decades. And um, I'm nearing 30, and I have, I'm guessing that Abraham and Sarah probably, it's possible that they even waited longer than that. Um, I don't know that we could imagine a more bleak situation. <coughs> but one lesson that I think that we learn from the heartbreaking reality of barrenness is that as one author says, that we are not the masters of our own destinies. Abraham and Sarah were not the masters of their own destinies. When they tried to 
uh, work their way around and try to make God's promises happen on their own. It didn't work out because God knew what he wanted to do. God had a specific vision for how he would bring salvation to his people and a plan that would demonstrate his strength, power, and ability to do the impossible. So that's there in Abraham, and now we're going to hop over to the book of Ruth, if you want to flip there. Um, Ruth is a young woman. I'm going to give you clip notes again. A, one, a young woman from Moab who lived during the time of the judges. So this is a time when Israel had no king. Um, and so while the text of Ruth, you can look in, uh, I'm just going to read from chapter 4, but in Ruth... Uh, Chapter 1, we find out that she's not, it doesn't say that she was barren, but we do know that she was married for uh, 10 years and she was still without a child. And that would have been, um, give us cause to think within that culture that she probably was um, unable to conceive or having difficulty with it. So Ruth's story begins with a man named Elimelech and his wife Naomi. Elimelech and Naomi, along with their two sons, take a journey to Moab, and so they're leaving Bethlehem behind, um, which is the house of bread, ironically enough, because it's experiencing a famine. Um, so Elimelech then, once they arrive in Moab, um, the first bad thing happens, and Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi with her two sons. And then the two sons marry Moabite women, and that's where we meet Orpah and Ruth, and then they remain there for about ten years. And so it's within this time um, that it doesn't seem like either of them are having children, Orpah or Ruth. Um, and then another bad thing happens. The two sons die, leaving Naomi alone with her two daughters-in-law. And so this causes Naomi, who um, generally her name, they say, talk, we talk about her name being um, pleasant, to say, telling everybody, you need to call me Mara now, which means bitter. So she's gone from fullness to emptiness, and she's lost everything. Um, and then she decides to return to Bethlehem, where the famine has ended. And so as the story goes, uh, Ruth decides to go with Naomi to Bethlehem, and Orpah stays behind, um, devoting herself to Naomi in the face of a situation that's pretty grave. Uh, Naomi has no husband, she has no sons, and no prospect of sons, um, which means no way of provision for herself or for Ruth. Um, Naomi and Ruth are in need of what is called a kinsman redeemer. They need someone to care for them and to carry on the family name. So when the women return to Bethlehem, Ruth goes to work in the fields, um, and she quote, happens to uh, happens upon the fields of Boab, who also happens to be a relative of Naomi. I say happens because that's what the text is telling us: is like this isn't really just chance. Something bigger is at work here. Um, so long story short. Ruth proposes to Boaz, and in, in chapter 4, 13 through 17, we read how the story ends. And so 14, 13, 4, 13 says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life, and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law, who loves you, is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. And so again, we're seeing God bringing life where there was none. This child is a blessing to both women. Um, God provides 
Obed as a son for Ruth and then a redeemer for Naomi. And now we start to see where this story is going because if you're familiar with uh, this lineage, we start to see that this child of promise is a part of the lineage of Christ who will be our redeemer, the redeemer promised back in Genesis 3. So Boaz and Ruth have a son, Obed, who is the father of Jesse, and Jesse is the father of David, who is Israel's future king. Um, flip one more. If you just flip the next page, we're going to meet our next um, woman who's named Hannah. <clears throat> and we're going to encounter the uh, same familiar story of God working the impossible. So again, the Cliff Notes version of her story. Um, there's a man named Elkanah who's a Levite priest, and he has two wives, Penina and Hannah. And then 1 Samuel 1-2 one, uh, tells us that Penina had children while Hannah didn't have children. So this caused um, some strife between the two women as Penina would taunt Hannah year after year after year. And so again, we're learning from the text that this is something that Hannah's been going to, through for a while, um, longing for a child. And then if we keep in mind that God's promise to Abraham and Sarah, that God's plan for his people is contingent upon childbearing, we start to understand the unbearable hopelessness that barrenness led to during this time. Hannah's pain goes far beyond her own personal anguish. Her hope is to see God's promise fulfilled, and she can't see past that when she's unable to uh, have a child. So in the midst of her despair, Hannah prays and asks for a child, whom she would then dedicate to the Lord. And so can we guess what happens next? So in 1 Samuel 1, 19-20 we read, uh, They rose early in the morning, this is uh, Hannah and her husband, and worshipped before the Lord. Then they went back to their house at Ramah, and Elkanah knew Hannah his wife, and the Lord remembered her. And in due time Hannah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Samuel. For she said, I have asked of him from the Lord. So here again, the Lord has provided Hannah's response to God's provision of a child in the midst of her barrenness is actually to sing a song. And so I'm not going to read this song, I'm not going to sing the song to you either. Um, <laughs> but I want to highlight some parts that will sound familiar when we end up at, you know, finishing on Mary's um, story. So if you want to look in 1 Samuel 2, 1, I'm going to read just a couple of verses. So now that Hannah has, has prayed to God and received a child, she prays, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like our God. And then verse 4. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who were hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren has borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. In verse 8, he raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillows of the earth are the Lord's, and on them he has set the world. And in verse 10, the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Um, and that word anointed there is also what we would... Uh, translate uh, Messiah or in the Greek it will later be Christ and so another spoiler alert for you um, so we see through the story of Hannah that she hoped and then she bore a child but as Hannah's song demonstrates that her hope actually goes beyond 
just her own personal gain from uh, bearing a child. Hannah longs to see the Lord making right of all that has gone wrong back in Genesis 3. God's answer to her barrenness assures Hannah that nothing is impossible with God and that he's continued to work out his plan for his creation. Remember that Hannah lived during the time of the judges at a time when Israel had no king and all the other nations around them had a king. Um, but God had promised Abraham and Sarah that he would provide kings through their descendants. So we can see why Hannah's barrenness then would present a problem. And so I hope that we have been able to see now um, this recurring theme of barrenness is representative of humanity's barrenness, which is the result of from sin entering the world. These individual stories of these women are symbolic of a larger, more tragic human problem going again back to the garden. We see that humanity as a whole was in need of this child of promise. That child promise in Genesis 3.15, a child that will make all things right. And so this leads us to uh, one last stop in the Old Testament before going to Luke um, and to the book of Isaiah. I'm going to read two familiar, I would think, pro uh, prophecies. Um, we read them often during the time of Advent. So if you want to look first at Isaiah 7.14, where we're going to read about another child of promise. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. And then in, in chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. Of the on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this so this uh, prophecy actually finally brings us back to Luke chapter 1 and now Luke it's interesting that his is the only gospel that includes an announcement of John uh, John the Baptist's birth and Elizabeth's conception and so I think if you notice in our text that um, this announcement is appearing right before the birth of Jesus is foretold. And as I mentioned earlier, I think Luke is attempting to, to trigger our memories, to look backward, and to remind us of God's habit of doing the impossible. And so we've seen this demonstrated through women like Sarah and Ruth and Hannah, and there are more women um, throughout the Old Testament that are experiencing this. Um, and then, of course, Elizabeth. God has established a pattern of faithfulness. Um, so when God encounters barrenness, he meets it with the bringing of new life. And so I think this serves to prepare us for what God does next through Mary, as we remember God's promise of a child, again, Genesis 3, 15, and his faithfulness throughout the story. However, something shocking happens, and then God does something that's rather unexpected. So if we want to read um, now in Luke 1. 26 through 55, we'll finish up with Mary's story. And so in verse 26, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city uh, of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. 
And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give, him to, will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And 34, And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? Again, honest question. This would be our reaction. <laughs> 135, and the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child will be to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. <coughs> and Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leapt for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. So within Luke 1, we learn that Elizabeth and Mary uh, become pregnant, but both, um, both through miraculous means, but in different ways. So I think the juxtaposition of these two women, one is barren and one is a virgin, demonstrates the full spectrum of God's power to do the impossible. And that's bringing life for there is none. The anticipation is building now as we look forward to what God's going to do next. And God fulfills his promise in Genesis 3.15 by coming in the flesh as a child. So in a way, this is expected what we see with Mary. We've seen God do the impossible, and yet it completely blows every expectation we've ever had out of the water because God comes himself in the flesh. Now anyone, woman or man, who has longed for a child knows all too well the pain that many have faced in the Old Testament. And the season of Advent reminds us that we have a God of compassion who knows and understands our suffering. God's promise to us is not that if we believe uh, hard enough or the right thing that he will give us what we want. God's promise, rather, is that he will provide a child who will make all things right, putting to death everything that has gone wrong in his good creation. God meets our emptiness by giving us himself. The Incarnation is God's answer to humanity's barrenness, physically and spiritually. The fall of humanity resulted in this loss of life. When sin entered in the world uh, and disrupted the relationship between God and us, life no longer thrived. Um, but with the advent of Jesus, with the Incarnation, God brings to humanity the fullness of life. Now tracing God's story, as we've seen from Genesis to Luke, we see that it's Jesus who is the promised one. All of those children before that we saw um, serve to point to Christ as the true and ultimate child of promise. Jesus is the child promised in Genesis 3.15. Jesus is the promised king in Genesis 17. Jesus is the promised redeemer in Ruth 4. And Jesus is the promised Messiah in 1 Samuel 2. Jesus is the promised one. And then Mary responds, as we see uh, at the end of her story, with this, puzzling um to this puzzling but wonderful news with uh, a song much like hannah 
And so I'm going to read uh, Luke 146-55. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. So Mary's song here proclaims what God has done through the incarnation and in taking on flesh and coming to dwell among his people. And then he declare, and she's declaring what God is continuing to do through his people, the church. When we read Luke 1, we are pointed back to the promises of God. So now we've gone from Genesis 3.15 and the first promise of a child to the pronouncement that Mary will give birth to the Son of God. Think about the amount of time that has passed since that first promise. Thousands of years later, the child was born. Christ has come, and the waiting is over. But now that the first advent has come, we as the church now wait um, on what we call the second advent, or when Christ will return and bring to completion the work of his kingdom. And in the midst of our waiting, we are called to prepare for the arrival of the coming king. The incarnation of the Son of God has brought about reconciliation between God and man and between one another. So in Christ's coming, his living, dying, and rising, our relationship with God is restored, and so our relationships with each other as well. As one author writes about Advent, he describes Advent as celebrating a truth about God, the revelation of God in Christ whereby all of creation might be reconciled to God. That is a process in which we now participate and the consummation of which we anticipate. So because the king is returning, we have hope, and we wait patiently, but we do not wait idly. God has, excuse me, God has inaugurated his kingdom, and we work with him in the ministry of reconciliation as we prepare for the Lord's return. Unless we grow weary of waiting or perhaps doze off um, as we keep watch, let us take the time during this season of Advent, this season of waiting and hopeful anticipation, to remind us what that hopeful, expectant waiting looks like. And so to finish this off, I want to read... Um, a few verses from Romans 8 that I think summarize is what we've talked about, talked about today and uh, point this forward. So if you want to turn to Romans 8, starting in verse 12. So then, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to the death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons and daughters of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoptions as sons and daughters, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. 
For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons and daughters, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we await for it with patience. Let us pray. Unexpected God, your advent alarms us. Wake us up from drowsy worship, from the sleep that neglects love, and sedative of misdirected frenzy. Awaken us now to your coming and bend our angers into your peace. Amen. Amen. <laughs>